Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Bones and All. But you can't spend the night? Not all night. So where'd you move here from anyway? Eastern Shore. Try that. Dad! You didn't. When the cops get here, you have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Mother walks us. I don't actually meet many others. Why'd you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? I'm not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. One of us. Jake's teaching me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go. Business. You don't think I'm a bad person. All I think is that I love you. Alright, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Bones and All, and the story is as follows. Love blossoms between a young woman on the margins of society and a disenfranchised drifter as they embark on a 3,000-mile odyssey through the back roads of America. However, despite their best efforts, all roads lead back to their terrifying pasts and a final stand that will determine whether their love can survive their differences. The film is starring Timothy Chalamet, Taylor Russell, Mark Rylance, Chloe Savini, David Gordon Green, Andre Holland, and Michael Stuhlbarg. It is directed by Luca Guanino. 
and it is written by David Kajanik. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Zoe Rose Bryant. Hello, hello. And Dan Baer. Life's never dully with Sully. God damn it, you started off with my favorite line in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, when Mark Rylance says that, I howl every time. (laughs) So good. I've seen this movie twice now, and I cannot wait to watch it again, because one of the things about Bones and All that I find to be so fascinating is the way that it fuses uh, different genres together here. It's a road movie. It's a young YA romance. It's a horror movie. It's a cannibal movie. It's a lot of different things. It's a coming of age story. And so Luca Guanino here, he's had a very, very interesting last couple of years, I would say, with uh, Call Me By Your Name, nominated for Best Picture, winning Best Adapted Screenplay, follows that up with Suspiria, which was obviously a hard turn from Call Me By Your Name. And with Bones and All, it feels almost like a merger between those two films in a way there's a sensitivity and a tenderness and then there's also some gnarly violence involved as well uh but also with this art house sensibility that i just find to be so captivating that i'm sure we'll talk about more here as we dive in so let's start off with zoe rose bryant because zoe i have seen your reactions to this movie quite a few times, actually, on various social media channels. And I know that you're pretty fond of it, but I want to know specifically why. So what did you think of Bones and All? So I feel like this was a movie that was like engineered for me specifically to stand it because my three favorite genres are coming of age, romance and horror. Here, I thought you were going to say cannibal. (laughs) Not quite, not quite. Um, But this kind of throws all of those genres in a blender and features one of my favorite actors at the moment who I've really enjoyed getting to see come into his own over the years, ever since Chalamet broke through and Call Me By Your Name. And I feel like we've kind of grown up together and stuff. I've got to see him ever since the start. I remember him in Interstellar. So it's really fun watching him take on new, really challenging, I think, unique roles like this and weaponizing his stardom in that way. Um, And I'm also, uh, I've read the book, so I was familiar kind of with the storyline and liked where it went, but I was a little skeptical of how it would be adapted because I think that there are certain story issues with the book that kind of left me feeling unfulfilled and ultimately disappointed. And I think here that Luca Guadagnino and David Kajanic pull this adaptation off brilliantly because it corrects a lot of what I took issue with in the novel and also like you were saying, makes the story so much more sensitive. And I think there's a bit more solemnity to it in the novel. And here it had that heartrending romance, but also the gnarly graphic horror. And that dichotomy is almost impossible to, I think, make work. And somehow it's like alchemy. It just, it blends together so perfectly. And I think it really captures the chaos of being in love and being alive. And I'm also a big Taylor Russell fan. So I was really excited to see her finally sink her teeth, literally, into a role like this after she (laughs) (laughs) came out of waves as the standard of that film. And really her career took off almost overnight. And so, yeah, almost everything that this movie encompasses was kind of brought together, I feel like, to bring me on board alone and it did. It is still my favorite movie of the year. I don't really see anything topping it. I don't really think anything can provide as emotional an experience with as many of these different genre elements blended together so brilliantly as Guadagnino and Kajanic do here. And I'm very excited to discuss the nitty gritty of it all with you, too. Well, 
as Dan Bear opened up this podcast saying, it's never dully with Luca Guanino. <laughs> uh, that isn't exactly the line there, but I, I just want to find every excuse I can in this podcast to try and work it in if I can. <laughs> Dan, how about you? Uh, what did you think of Bones and All? Uh, so Luca Guadagnino's career has been really fascinating to me. I am a huge fan of I Am Love, his uh, 2009 film with Tilda Swinton, uh, which is just like one of the most sensual, beautiful movies I've ever seen in my life. And ever since then, he's been doing these adaptations starting in 2015 with A Bigger Splash and then Call Me By Your Name, Suspiria, and now this, where like A Bigger Splash and Call Me By Your Name were relatively straightforward adaptations of their source material. And then Suspiria just turned the original film by Dario Argento completely on its head. And Bones and All, <laughs> this... I, I don't know... I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting from this movie, but it was not whatever it ended up being. And I say whatever it ended up being because, like Zoe said, I think there's so many genres that this is working with. But but more than that, the the tone of this thing just threatens to go off the rails completely constantly throughout the movie. <laughs> um, and I don't, I, even while watching the movie, I was having this internal battle of like, is this good? Is it bad? Is it camp? Is it serious? I, I, I don't know what, what is happening. <laughs> Dan, Dan, n- s- not going to lie. Similar vibes. <laughs> <laughs> but but that was the thing like just the vibe i i ended up like about halfway through being like fuck it i don't care i am on this movie's wavelength i am so like into whatever the hell it's doing i am here i am along for the ride i am just going with it and like wow what a ride what a film what a cast Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet are obviously great. They are two of our best young actors. And as if they, <laughs> let's be clear, they did not have to prove that after their previous work, but they absolutely prove it beyond here. Um, but the supporting cast, I Chloe Sevigny, jaw-dropping. Mark Rylance, maybe my favorite performance of the year. It's so out there and bizarre, and I loved every hot, messy second of it. And then absolutely unrecognizable Michael Stuhlbarg just chewing the scenery like his life depended on it. And I just like, you know, the balls on this man to make this movie a Call Me By Your Name reunion without the actual cannibal is just really something. And I, I thank him. <laughs> so I saw this movie at the Telluride uh, Film Festival, and it had already had its world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival a few days prior. And like you, Dan, as I said, I, I didn't really know at first what to make of it because 
it was blending so many different tones and genres together. But by the end of it, I was pretty sure that I did love it. Um, I needed to watch it again. And that opportunity presented itself at the New York Film Festival, which is where I know you saw it for the first time because I was with you uh, for that screening. <laughs> and that was just a great experience, I thought, uh, rewatching that film again. And I walked away from it with a lot more um, understanding of the themes and what Luca and David were working with here in terms of the story. Um, for me, I think the reason why it works so well for, um, for me is because it reminds me of movies like Badlands and Wild at Heart. Like it just feels like something that was made in a different era, something that does not feel like a 2022 movie at all. It has like these qualities to it that scream, oh, this was clearly made in the early 90s or late 80s or something like that. And I saw that both in the filmmaking techniques, but also, too, just the radical ideas of the story. Something like this in today's marketplace is very rare, I find. And Zoe, when you were mentioning Timothy Chalamet's star quality, I think that is the element for me that adds a bit more to it that makes it feel that much more unique. Because I think at this point in his career... Timothy really is a major star now. And yes, he still continues to do like indie projects and things like that. But I almost see him on almost like this Leonardo DiCaprio like level trajectory where Dune is like Timothy's Titanic. And he's at a point in his career, I think, where he's such a a lister, but people don't really see him in that movie star quality sense because he is still very young. But I think he is. Or at least whatever a movie star is supposed to be in 2022 today. And so you have him along with Taylor Russell, who, as we said before, was such a breakout in waves. And she actually is really the true lead of this movie. I mean, she is the anchor that carries us through this entire thing. Then you uh, couple that along with these one scene wonders from Chloe Sevigny, Michael Stuhlbarg. Mark Rylance has more than one scene, but they're, they're all in it kind of sporadically throughout, sprinkled in. It really is Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet that really guide us through this whole thing. And to me, it just felt like a movie that was attempting to push boundaries. It really felt like that to me. I felt like I was watching something absolutely radical, while also at the same time something that was, I thought, leaning very heavily on uh, its influences of the past. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. 
Yeah, I like the point you made about it feeling very much like a 70s or 80s film because I'm also a huge fan of Badlands. I like Bonnie and Clyde and other Lover on the Run movies. Yeah, it, it yeah. It really felt like it was cut from that same cloth. And if you think about like a lot of the classic quote-unquote cannibal cinema too, like Cannibal Holocaust and stuff like that that mm-hmm. came out around that same time, I think you have that gnarliness in the film too in a way that studio films can't ever really get close to and and like we were saying earlier with the balance it's it's just remarkable i can't, i don't i honestly cannot think of another movie in this present moment that is so strikingly sensitive and manages to make me feel so much for these two lost souls and the romance they share with one another but also like scares me and unsettles me to my core like dan you were saying with the michael stuhlbarg scene and the stuff with chloe Sevigny and any other interaction they have when they're eating somebody or mark rylance at the end like i don't oh is this the time where i should say spoiler alert oh yeah probably (laughs) maybe (laughs) sorry sorry (laughs) i don't think i got too in depth but yeah that's good you got carried away baby but not too in depth (laughs) but but i will say though uh that in regards to that, I, he, here's a question I've been wondering for a little while, and feel free, both of you, because I think both of you have probably thought about this at some point. If this wasn't a cannibal movie and it was a movie about just two drug addicts, we've we've seen this movie before. We've seen this movie play out in many movie sense within other movies. Yeah. The two uh, lost souls, like you said, Zoe, who are bound together b- because they're... Um, of something dark. Yeah, 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 exactly. So my question is, take the cannibalism out of it. Um, do we still have the same affection for the movie or is it the cannibal element that gives it a unique enough flavor that is what draws us into it? I, I think it is the la- the latter because of the rules that come along with the cannibalism uh, that I think that's what it gives the movie its uniqueness. Yeah. I do think that's a large part of it, but even if this was about two drug addicts, two drug addicts and it was the same cast, I think I'd like it just as much Yeah, because it's those performances are so good. And so, um, all in tune with each other on whatever weird wavelength they're all on. They're all on the same one and it works so well. Each scene is just so beautifully performed, beautifully shot. It's superbly edited. My God, there isn't Mm -hmm. an ounce of fat on this movie. And given that it moves slow, uh, that's kind of impressive. I actually thought that some of the editing techniques in this movie in general were yeah, pretty striking at times. There there were some creative decisions done with the editing that I don't want I don't want to get specifically like into it necessarily cuz I, I want to like people to discover this for themselves, but there were a couple of moments where I went, "Oh, oh, oh, that's interesting." And it didn't take me out of the movie, which is the best compliment I could possibly give it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting to see how they balanced kind of dreamy editing in certain sequences. Yeah. The very harsh editing and like, you know, the murder sequences are eating and all of that. Like I like we go back to how beautiful the tonal balance is in the movie. And I do agree with what Dan was saying that I think it would still stand on its own, even if you take the genre elements out of it, because there's so much else here that works. But I do think that for me, it's not just also what the cannibalism stands for literally, but the mm-hmm. metaphor that um, Guadagnino and Cass. Yes. That's what I was going to ask. Like, did the two of you 
uh, take a moment to, you know, decide for yourselves what you wanted it to be a metaphor for, or did you just take it at face value? Oh, no, I was absolutely, the second I walked out, I'm like, the gay allegory! (laughs) (laughs) Same thing, Zoe, or? Yeah, and it was interesting because the book is is set in the 90s, and yeah, yeah, the metaphor is for meat eating, essentially. It's like a pro-vegan piece, and that was one of the things I found least effective about the book, but here it's just, like, invigorating to see how they reinvent it because... I, I don't know. I don't think it really has to be taken like so literally as like specifically like, you know, it, this stands for gay people, but really just like the queer other is like what I saw it as, especially because it is set in the 80s or in the height of the Reagan administration. And we all know it was unfortunately happening then. And yeah. I, I think it's that it's that general association I and many other viewers have with with those queer outsiders and those who there's something about them that they can't control that naturally alienates them from the rest of the world and how finding the one person who shares that with you and sees all of you and still supports you and loves you just can literally change your entire life and that's what I really think was most resonant about the movie overall and also like the ability to you know set it during this time period where you're sort of courting those ideas in what the story is about but to also have the specific thing that they are outsiders for be eating human bodies and being constantly soaked in blood during this time period that was really really powerful to watch for me and to have that not be something that these characters were mostly ever ashamed of i was gonna say uh, like timothy chalamet you better hope you don't get pulled over by a cop (laughs) (laughs) nonchalantly just like covered in blood 24 7 (laughs) i mean look very few people can pull that look off he is absolutely one of them you know i gotta say too yeah he's got the open shirt you know shirtless underneath uh he's got this punk rock like aesthetic to his hair and everything and some people have mentioned that I, i've seen some people say that the performance didn't really do as much for them like it, like it's been overhyped i think it's pitch perfect here in terms of him just being this confident i don't want to call him like a bad boy necessarily but there's a swagger to him that i really really liked yes and I, I mean, everyone knows I'm a huge Timothy Chalamet fan. <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, naturally. And I, I think so, he has two types of performances that people now kind of say like, oh, he's either doing one thing or the other. And that's dialing it all the way up to an 11 or doing his call me by your name, understated approach. And here I think I thought it was really fascinating how it kind of starts at an 11 and he's very like bold and brash and he has that sexy kind of scary swagger like you were saying. But I just thought it was so touching how he really pulled back all the layers of Lee over the film and showed, I think, new dimension even as an actor, because I don't think I've really seen him pull off that balance of that, you know, that ruggedness, but also that tender soul as well as he does here, like in the Hill scene or just any of the second half of the film he shares with Marin. It was, it really felt like I was watching a new type of timothy chalamet and i i think the i agree i think the performance is totally pitch perfect yeah i was a little worried in the early scenes to be honest with you he was like a little a little i don't know what the, i don't know like a little jittery and a little mm-hmm. 
uh, short yeah. with uh, some of his like sentences and things like that. Like the, there was there was something off putting yeah. about the performance to me in the beginning. But I agree that by the time we get to the end and especially that scene with the two of them on the hill together, um, I, I, I thought to myself, wow, Chalamet is like digging really deep into this character right now and is giving a really fantastic performance. I, I wish I felt that the entire way through, but it gradually did build for me by the end. Where Taylor Russell, I, like I said before, she's the anchor. Uh, she was consistent the whole way through for me throughout this entire movie. Yeah, she is absolutely fantastic. I I cannot say enough good things about her in general, but specifically about this performance. She is so like she is in Marin's skin from frame one it's so easy to like to see this as a sort of extension of the character that she played in waves in a lot of ways she is that kind of little quiet shy maybe a little repressed and she's deeply in love with a guy who is kind of nice but also kind of bad for her but uh, the way she plays it marion feels like very much her own person and i i really felt like i was watching an actress just fuse herself completely to the character Mm -hmm. she was playing and i i i I absolutely love her their chemistry oh my god insane like maybe the best chemistry of any romantic leads this year outside of like lady chatterley's lover which like (laughs) i mean i i attribute that mostly to luca and the way that he Mm -hmm. first of all casting casting is super important yeah but also too i think that there is something about the film's atmosphere that Mm -hmm. lends itself well to these two broken lost people who find each other and at first you know it's not like love at first sight at least the movie doesn't play it up that way mm-hmm. on a more subconscious level i think it actually is uh but the movie never actually overtly makes that obvious and i think that's the key is luca subtly gradually naturally lets it just happen and it it, like it doesn't happen within the first scene the second scene or even the third scene but by the time we get to like the fourth fifth scene Mm -hmm. you know you start to see that they're getting closer and then by the end of it you're just all in that to the point where they're like playing house and living a life (laughs) and i'm just like yes like can i just have a whole movie of them just i know living a a life in this house making breakfast (laughs) that that ending like that that last bit like should not work at all it is so completely different from anything that came before and yet i'm there i'm watching it and i'm like so happy for Mm -hmm. them and yeah. like you said, like I would just watch a whole nother movie of just that. And then once like the ball drops with Mark Rylance's reappearance, I, again, I was just like, oh, shit. And the way that like it, it feels, it does feel almost like an intrusion from a whole other movie, which is kind of like a really cool like beta game that Guadagnino and Kijanic are playing with this screenplay and with this movie that like Ryland literally comes in from a whole completely different universe than what they're in right now. The ending is just 
like so gutting on you know such an intrinsic level because I totally agree with what you guys said about when they're playing house like my soul literally I was like my soul is uplifted I'm having such a great time this is exactly what I wanted for them and obviously I knew how it ended but I think it is remarkable how Guadagnino and Kadranik also changed the ending but still kept the same outcome because in the Mm. book Marin just kind of like eventually embraces her inner cannibal and gets too close to Lee and eats him to kind of like keep her with him forever and she can't control it anymore, et cetera, et cetera. It felt very rushed and it wasn't really emotionally fulfilling. And here I was like, it, it obviously is still incredibly sad, but it it felt like a celebration of the connection they had and the time they'd spent together regardless because now they'd still be together, but it's the choice that he is making on his own terms. And we see the, this, we finally get to see somebody eat somebody bones and all, and it's been built up to that. And I think that adds another emotional element to it too. And I just love then ending on that final scene of them back on the hill, embracing and remembering them. Yeah, I, I will say that it's actually my number one, it's my number one flaw with the movie for me personally, because, okay. The very end. Yes. So I'm going to get into this and I I know it's the end. Don't worry, we'll backtrack and we'll go to other things. (laughs) But since we're here, uh, let me just bring this up because it is the only thing about the movie that does annoy me a little bit. And maybe you two can help me through it. Um, But I think by that point, as Zoe was saying before, I think we just care so much about these characters at this point in the story. And they get rid of Mark Rylance. Great. uh, as, As you do. Uh, she eats Lee bones and all, which I, I selfishly, I kind of wanted to actually in a very, like almost in a graphic detail, actually see that, <laughs> but it's okay that they don't actually show it, show it. Um, it, you know, it's implied that that's what she does. And then we cut to the scene of them on the hill together, which is a flashback to a previous scene of them embracing each other. Kind of like what you're saying, uh, Zoe, implying that they will always be together obviously living inside Marin now at this point, but, um, uh, so, okay. So here's my, here's my problem. I know that the book has its own, you know, answers for this. And I also know from interviewing David, uh, that there was a proposed other ending, uh, that actually got cut, but is Marin okay? I don't know, honestly, by the time this movie's over. I think it's implied that she is, but I wanted to know that after she loses the person that she has grown so close to and a char- and she's a character that we are so invested in, I want to make sure that she isn't going to off herself or she isn't going to fall down a bad path and she's going to keep going. And I don't know if the movie successfully got me there to answer that question of whether or not if she's okay. I, I do understand what you're saying there, Matt, especially since like she has lost everybody, everybody, literally everybody. And I did kind of in that moment, like I wanted to just give her the, this big, big old hug not too close now at a respectful distance (laughs) Um, uh but yeah i i do i do get that feeling i i too was like this is like this most sad possible thing and i do think that ending with that little scene of them on the hill it, it it 
it took a little of the energy of that sequence out. It stopped the movie of a little bit of that energy for me. But <laughs> I also think that I kind of needed that moment to be like, no, like their relationship was a good thing. And, you know, I, I didn't really, I don't think I got from that scene, like they'll, they'll always be together forever sort of thing. But what I did get was a, like, this was a moment in time and she's going to have a lot more of those across her life. Yeah, I think that's my takeaway from it, too. And I, I, it is really hard, I think, to discern whether mentally and emotionally she will be okay following this. Because I know in the book it's heavily implied that she is not. But I mm-hmm. think with ending it on that final scene, I don't know. It This is a very different film, but it kind of reminded me how I felt watching the end of Titanic and being devastated for the first time. And then it ending on them reunited, you know, in the afterlife that it's kind of implied. And for me here, I was like, oh, at least through this brutal yet beautiful act they will still be one and even though obviously it is incredibly devastating and something that i think will affect her for a very long time he is still with her and inside her both you know physically and spiritually and i think that gave me the hope that she will eventually find her happiness down the line yeah that's the thing that i was like kind of trying to piece together though was it is kind of implied almost uh, throughout that happiness for their kind is almost an impossibility mm-hmm. because of the life that they have to live where they either just keep eating or they die and there is no there is no in between I think if we tie it back to to the queer and AIDS and 80s metaphor, yeah. I think you can see this as a queer couple in the 80s and one is mm-hmm. lost to AIDS. And yeah. it is an incredibly devastating experience for them as well. But it is something that you carry with you forever all the times you did share with one another. And you do find later happiness as well. It's something that you can't ever forget, but I don't think it ends your life entirely it's just a very impactful moment no i i I hear you on that i i think that's a good read and i i think that the lesson that one can learn walk away with from this movie as a result that that makes it all the more powerful actually let's dial it back a little bit here uh let's go over to some of these supporting performances i mentioned before that some of these characters show up for one scene and in the case of mark rylance i think it's only three scenes it's his introduction scene with Marin, Mm -hmm. which considering the structure of the film i kind of thought to myself the first time watching it oh okay so mark rylance had his moment mark stuhlbarg's had his moment chloe sivanese had her moment like so when he showed up again the second time Mm -hmm. that one was more surprising and also too i was giddy because i was like yes Mm. more mark rylance yeah absolutely (laughs) And unhinged Mark Ryland. The yeah. third time, as as he says, unfinished business, I, I was like expecting it and it didn't actually, you know, it, I, I don't know. I think I think by that point I was like, OK, when's he going to show up? When's he going to ruin the party? Like literally like walk into their lives and ruin everything, uh, which I thought was maybe a little bit of uh, too much of a sleight of hand on on their part. Um, but but. I was glad once again that we got more Mark Rylance (laughs) because he is Dan. You mentioned before he's out there. Mm -hmm. 
he's been out there before. Don't look up. And that's something I want to ask uh, the two of you here. <laughs> what do you think it is about this out there performance that works so much more than, say, something like he did last year and Don't Look Up or any of the other number of performances where it's like, OK, Mark Rylance is playing weird again. Why does this one work? Put bluntly, the screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, th- this is a good screenplay. And I know, like, obviously, like, you know, the, life's never dully with Sully is there on the page. <laughs> and there it is again. <laughs> all he had to do was put, you know, his little Mark Rylance twist on it. And, like, I don't know where he got this accent the look the the voice the movements i don't know where he had any of it but like the man is <laughs> the man is a good old school theater trained actor mm-hmm. and he always understands the assignment and goes all in sometimes the assignment is one that he entirely makes up on his own <laughs> but he always <laughs> understands the assignment <laughs> See, and and the thing that works for me, even though it is a very broad and big performance, is that there are those moments when I genuinely felt sad for Sully. And yes. he did actually care about Mary. And like when he says what he's never eaten yeah. with somebody before, like you feel that moment. And that's yeah. that is partially because he's such a good actor, but also the script gives him that beautiful beat that adds that dimension to his character. There's that uh, moment in the uh, second scene that he has with Marin up against the truck where there's a close up on him and it holds mm-hmm. for just enough time for you to see that sadness in Rylance's eyes. Yeah. I, I mean, I-, I was kind of blown away in that moment because here is a character that is so creepy, so off-putting. You know he's bad news. You don't know if you know he's not going to eat her because he's ma- he makes that clear. And also, too, there's like this uh, rule that eaters don't eat other eaters. But you also have it in the back of your mind. You know, is he grooming her? Is he going to try and molest her? Like, like what what is he doing? And there is this really just uncomfortable, unsettling aura that he gives off. So the fact that you feel that the entire time, I agree with you, Zoe. The fact that he is able to elicit any kind of sympathy is kind of a miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he fully embraces the character's strangeness but also his his uh, i'm not humanity the right word not the humanity like you feel real sympathy and pity for this poor man who is you just get the feeling that he has just been on his own and all he wants is a friend yeah Mm -hmm. you know to just live his life with and well i think he wants a little bit more than that well, yeah, but well, when I say like a friend to live his life with, you know, yeah, take the word friend however you want. Sure, sure. Um, but like, he really does. He just like wants a person, and he Rylance is so good at giving that that soul to him that even though he's clearly a weirdo and probably bad news, you can't help but like feel for him especially since like he is basically the first person in this movie that shows Marion any kindness at all and so even it i i thought a lot 
while watching this movie about Barbarian. Mm, Um, Specifically that opening act where you're like unsure if um, Bill Skarsgård's character is like a bad guy or not. And that's this this movie manages to pull that trick twice with Mm -hmm. both Lee and with Sully because like you're both the whole time like I know I should be wary of this guy but at the same time like I feel for him and you want the best for him and you partially want the best for him because you want the best for Marin but no but I think that's just like the really beautiful thing about this movie and the way that it's structured and the, the yeah the humanity that it gives to all of these characters yeah i think it balances this idea of us not knowing if he's an actual like predator who's going to like hurt Marin or just somebody who's a little off and like you were saying is is desiring human connection which is the grand theme of this entire movie and and you're never quite sure but with the sadness that does arise in his second scene i think i lean more towards the latter which then complicates things because he's still obviously the antagonist of the piece and there's just so much going on there and i i that's why i i was kind of worried to be very big and broad based on like what we saw in the early ads or the trailers and it was such a joy to just discover that there's this much depth to it, which we should not be surprised with when it comes to Mark Rylance. But it, I, that is why he is justly receiving all this acclaim so far and all these accolades. And in a just world, Oscar would come knocking too. But <laughs> we'll get no. there. We'll yeah. get there. Uh, what I will say is one other element here that I, I, I think you both picked up on this probably when you watched it, but in his death scene, the camera lingers heavily on Sully's pain that he's experiencing in that death scene and Ryland's the way that he plays it. It's, it's interesting because it should be like a fist pumping fuck yeah moment. And it sort of is because they did get him and he is, he is bad and he needs to go. But Mark plays it once again for sympathy He plays it for sympathy, like this guy is going in a really, really horrible manner right now. (laughs) And I, I, once again, just another example of his talent and also Luca and him collaborating to give this character uh, very unexpected layers with very minimal amount of screen time. One of those cases where it's only three scenes Granted, three pretty big scenes, but there's so much to read into, not to mention like the hair ties. Oh, my God. And just any kind of like backstory you want to make up for this guy. Oh, my God. You see Kayla's on the hair tie. My stomach. Mm. You know what? I didn't notice that until the second viewing, honestly. And that. Oh, that killed me. That killed me. It Um, killed me, too, Zoe. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, especially because I speaking of another actor who kind of only factors in here or there, I actually really came to care for her connection and story with Lee. And especially as we learn more from Timothy, like in the Hill scene and stuff. But I was really hopeful for their reconciliation and how I think they're on the phone with her. And when we first get to the playing house scene and I was like, oh, this is so cute. Like they're finally reconnected. And he has, you know, this great life now. Like, obviously, we all knew it was going to go to shit. But Oh, my God. When after all of that, you see her on the hair tie. It was just like gutting. Just so gut wrenching. I got I got to break up stool bark scene. I mean, 
because oh my god <laughs> unrecognizable so dan and i when we oh watched this god. together and i i had a similar feeling internally but it was so funny to actually watch it play out externally when we watched it together where uh another film critic at nyff during the press screening the you see stool like in a wide shot walk closer and closer to the frame oh my god and then you realize it is him while somebody in our audience like audibly super loudly went what the fuck (laughs) 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 i was was sitting there in the screen like who is this actor? He's so good. And there was a moment where I was like, is that Stuhlbarg? <laughs> oh my God, it's Stuhlbarg. What the hell? I, yeah, heading into this, I knew Timothy was in it, knew Taylor Russell, Mark Rylance. I didn't know about any of the other supporting players. Yeah, I wasn't aware until I think he popped up in one of the first teaser trailers. And and someone had talked about it, I think, at with his uh, now signature line at one of the screenings about <laughs> their, yeah. There's oh before Bones and all, oh. and there's after Bones and all. Which is another example of how good this screenplay is, because that line could be so stupid in anybody else's hands. As Alex Billington found out with Joker a couple of years yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And here, like, not only in that moment, but when we later realize what it means for the narrative overall, it lands and packs such a punch. And, oh my god, that that moment... Oh. God, everything with him and David Gordon Green is just so unnerving. Yeah, I I really, really loved the tension in that scene. I also thought Stuhlbarg, the last couple of years especially, I've always thought that, I, I mean, really, like he's one of our best character actors, and I have never actually seen him play a role quite like this. I've seen him play a lot of bad men and I've seen him play a lot of tender, sweet men. I've seen him play uh, men that are kind of dorky and unsure of themselves, but I've never seen him play like this level of creepiness and menace. I I have never really seen something like that before from him or maybe I have and I just don't remember because he he pops up like randomly in movies nowadays in like these very, very small uh, performances. But God, it was really like I, I was I was kind of listen, I love Mark Rylance in this, but I, I was like, can these two like meet up and become like the co-villains of this? Because I just want more Mark Stuhlbarg, please. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then David Gordon Green. Oh, my God. What? Know, yeah. Be seeing this like the day after I saw Halloween ends was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i know it was so interesting i was like how did he i didn't realize i didn't know he was in it too so i was like is that david gordon green who's like the psychopath like with michael St- it was a very surreal scene but he, he was also great i just want to know too what do you all make of that scene because david gordon green's character in, in there is not an eater but he's aspiring to be one I was just curious, like, what your read was on that, and uh, was there any other type of metaphor that you attribute that that to, or was it just simply a device to tell Lee and Marin, oh, these guys are, we need to, we need to go? <laughs> I, I, I still tried to, like, suss that out on my own, because I do think it's, it's trying to get at something or say something, and I think what I've come to is people who infiltrate your community and kind of manipulate that natural trust you would naturally normally share with someone who has the same affliction. And 
just I, not even being safe sometimes, even when you think you're around those like you or quote unquote friends. And that I think that is sometimes, you know, in outsider queer spaces an issue and that unnerving feeling. I've felt that before. And I, so I think that's kind of what it's trying to show. But yeah, I'm interested to hear what Dan has to say, too. Yeah, it wasn't really something that was it, it didn't. It was not a scene that I was thinking about when I was thinking about the allegory of the story, but I kind of, I don't know, I dug their whole vibe, <laughs> I guess, the two of them <laughs> together. I mean, like, duh, like, I dug the whole vibe of this whole movie, but, like, there was something about their relationship where they were, like, kind of a couple, mm-hmm. but also not. No, I see, I just took them as, like, being buddies uh but <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> I, in a way in a way zoe i i kind of had a similar read as you of i actually kind of took it as like david gordon green is like kind of maybe the worst of all of them because he is an imposter that is not suffering from this affliction or dealing with it accepting it but is willingly putting himself like in that world and I just thought to myself, like, okay, like y- you're lying to yourself. And maybe the, the movie could play it up for sympathy and sadness of like him, like wanting to feel like he's a part of something or a part of a community or whatever it was. Right. But they don't do that. They instead go the more in- intriguing, you know, menacing route with mm-hmm. it instead. So I almost like was kind of forced to read it as whatever type of individual this person represents like in the real world uh like almost like is disrupting the natural order of things and for attention or for self-acceptance i don't know but it's not it's not right yeah and i think there there have just been examples especially in when this story is set of people thinking of outsiders or queer people thinking they've found a safe space or a safe group and there's an intruder and someone else who doesn't belong there who then makes this sacred space threatening too and that's that constant war is that like if that place is not safe where is you know and so that was kind of what i saw with with when stoolbarg and green entered the picture and kind of what they were serving too and how we realize that Marin and Lee really only have each other that they can count on. I was also thinking a little bit too about, you know, the gay allegory as well, uh, uh, listening to the two of you speak. And I can't help but think about that one scene where uh, Lee, uh, to lure someone in for him and Marin to eat, he engages with this man sexually. (laughs) And I don't know if there's more to necessarily read into with that as it pertains to Lee's character or if it's just men are easier to target than women because of the time period or like, you know, and like, you know, is there like a no women, no children rule? You know what I mean? Like I I was trying to like kind of put it together. Look, like Megan Fox in classic of gay cinema, Jennifer's body, Lee (laughs) goes both ways. Okay, (laughs) And there is nothing wrong with that. I mean, if that if that is what it is, and that is what it is, and I'm all for it too. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I, I I certainly have no like actual opinion on whether or not this character is gay, straight, or bi, pan, whatever. But I I do think that it was more to the point of that like he will do whatever he has to mm-hmm. in order yeah. to make sure that himself and once they're together, Marin are able to survive. 
yeah, I, I honestly don't think, I mean, it could be a read on a sexuality. I didn't take it that way. I agree with Dan. Yeah. I think it's more a survival mechanism. And I also think it's, this is kind of how, you know, the gay space was in the 80s, is that it was kind yeah. of these discreet secret encounters. And and Lee knows that. He's very he's been around. He's a very socially aware guy. Like he knows how the world works. And I think he he picks up on that and and takes advantage of it. And oh my God. And I this when you find out that he is this like married man. <laughs> oh. It is like so I I was oh my god I I just like can't even I can't even find the word to like describe like the shock and just that feeling and when Marin realizes and everything just like blowing up in their face all at once is so well done and that's another example of the editing just yeah. being so expeditious and so effective and God I love that whole little set piece so much it it, it is terrifying and thrilling and really gets to the heart of it. Think all the emotions that make this movie work. See, for me, it's like that scene was the one that even more so than any kind of a drug addict metaphor. That was the scene for me that really connected the dots, like finally of, oh, okay, this is a story uh, for the LGBT community because here is somebody who is not suffering from the cannibalism in the real world who is a closeted gay man. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was pretty mind uh, like mind opening uh, for me when watching it for the first time, because there is like this journey that the movie kind of takes you on where it's evolving as you're watching it and it's revealing new layers to itself. And your brain is like kind of working on overdrive, but it's never somebody mentioned before that it is like slowly paced. It is, but deliberately so because you need time for your brain to process and catch up with what the movie is saying. And I think this is like one of those great examples where the editing of the film, although it is flashy in parts, um, the pacing of the movie overall is perfectly suited to allow for those themes to not only work over you, but for you to come to those conclusions on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's also something to the structure of it where, like, nearly every scene, except for, like, the interstitial ones, has some sort of twist on expectations mm-hmm. that happens in it to sort of, like, you know, keep you awake, even though it is very, like, deliberately paced overall and it sort of like keeps you awake and keeps you on your toes and like my god what's gonna happen next and the more and more that happens the more you are just on your toes at every moment until we get to that end and everything seems happy and oh fuck yeah (laughs) and I know, I think we misattribute these days slow pacing to poor pacing or pacing that is not very purposeful. And I think the secret to a good rope movie is getting you into like this lackadaisical lull where you are yeah. just along for the ride. And and that's how I felt here is even though it does feel like a full experience, you may like feel the time going by. It's not a bad thing. It just feels like you're there with them and you're experiencing these events that subvert our expectations, like Dan said, that really like provide a jolt to the narrative when you're maybe feeling a little lag because it never wants to let up and never wants to break that lull. And I think it is really another testament to how sharp the script is that I thought it was just so well structured and never really had a moment, like Dan said earlier too, where there was fat that could have been cut. I mean, in terms of a jolt to 
uh, Chloe Sevigny. I, I, oh I, did, I did not expect oh my God. for the best jump scare of 2022 <laughs> to come from. <laughs> oh, my God. Because also, too, by that point in the movie, uh, there hadn't really been any. What? There's maybe only one other jump scare. And it's the scene where uh, Baron bites the girl's finger. Mm-hmm. And this is only if you haven't actually been spoiled by the moment by any of the film's marketing material at this point. Which also, like, what an opening. Oh, oh yeah. God. What yeah. an opening. <laughs> but Chloe Sevigny, uh, who is playing uh, Marin's mother, uh, who she eventually tracks down and is the driving force in the movie. She's traveling cross country to find find her mother um because her relationship with her father played by andre holland who once again actually like another supporting performance in this that's great so great mm-hmm. um i i i kind of wish the movie ha- actually had more of him or he they could have found a way to bring him back into the story somehow because i was really really enjoying his scenes early on in the movie but back to chloe Sevigny. um when Marin finds her by that point in the movie, it's been so long since we've had like a jump scare. We've had some gnarly moments of brutality and some blood and gore. So when she lunges at her after being in almost like this catatonic like state, and then all of a sudden, rawr, and lunge, and I was like, holy shit. Like, I, when I, guys, when I tell you, I oh. nearly pissed myself. I couldn't, I, it really got me good. <laughs> I thought it was one of the most intense moments in any movie in 2022. And like, uh, again, like another actress who is like just completely fearless and will always commit 150%. And, you know, fully understands the assignment, like that moment and the cinematography, editing, Mm -hmm. everything in that moment, just like ah, pure, unadulterated cinema. I I love it so much. There are no small roles, only small actors. Yes. That's what I was just going to say is that it's one scene, essentially. And she really only, I think, says one word and still leaves such a lasting impression and like provides one of the movie's most memorable moments. And God, the reveal with like her hand, her arms and stuff <sighs> is handled so well. And yeah, it is. She, she did a phenomenal job. Look, she ate yeah. literally. It's a lot of eating in this movie. Oh I, my God. I think another um, performance that was like a single scene that stood out to me was uh, Jessica Harper, who was her character's stepmother and that scene where Marin goes to her house and, you know, thinks she's finding out more about her mom. Yes. And yeah, the way that Harper plays that and oh. that initially she's very cagey. And then like you see her and Marin kind of like have that like war of their minds and they're figuring out like how much to reveal and who knows what is so well done. And I just lo- I loved her whole vibe in that scene, especially like the dismissal and like, I'm so over this. Like, I don't want to see you again. Just. Oh, yeah, I agree. Another standout role for sure here. Uh, We talked about the editing. We've talked about the look, the vibe of the film. We talked about the performances. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Oh, my God. Is there anything that these two can't do? I've been using this uh, this video meme for a while now on social media, but Snoop Dogg just saying that motherfucker don't miss. (laughs) <laughs> it is so true for these two. They, they do not miss for real. I mean, mm-hmm. every single score, whether it's in film or television, that these two collaborate on and the variety of it all, too. Yeah. None of their scores sound the same. Yeah. And no. the thing about this score that I particularly loved 
is how it's a very, very simple score. And it plays a very simple uh, couple of few couple of notes. And as the movie progresses, that simple piece of music, while it never loses its identity, there are more layers put over it. And it's always consistent. It's always there. You get that plucking acoustic guitar sound that like creeps its way into the movie here and there. Uh, But there are these subtle uh, differences uh, that get added to it. And I really just love that progression throughout because it kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier, which is that as the as the score is growing, so too are uh, the themes and the layers and the characters and everything else is just building to the point that we get to this ending. And as we all as said before, we're all just so bought in at by that point. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the ending, I, while their score is incredible, and I think the love theme is so tender and touching, um, it's their original song that really sticks out the most to me when I think of their contribution to the film, because it, it I, I was not expecting that in that moment and for that song to really recontextualize what we're seeing in terms you know obviously because it is it is such a brutal act but that's where the beauty of it all comes in is is what it actually represents for for them and their relationship and what they meant to one another and the line where it's like just for a minute you made it feel like home which i think is the theme of their entire relationship that's really all that matters at the end of the day it, it, it is so devastating. And in a just world, this would be my best original song pick <laughs> of the year. Step aside, Lady Gaga and Rihanna. But yeah, it I, I've, I've had it on repeat and it like makes me like tear up every time. You know, it's funny. I was uh, thinking to myself after the second time I saw this movie, if the audience gets to that scene and that song plays and you have this break in the song where there's like a pause mm-hmm. and there's dead air for a second or two. If you don't hear anybody in the audience uh, laughing, you've got them. Mm-hmm. Because one screening, I did hear somebody kind of giggle during that moment. And I think it is because, what, what is it? It's for a moment, right? Or is it for a minute? Mm-hmm. For a minute. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, for a minute. It's like, pause for a minute and just somebody didn't started mm-hmm. laughing in one of the screenings and i was like oh damn like why you got to ruin this moment yeah <laughs> but then another time i watched it complete silence and i was like oh mm-hmm. this is good this is chilling yeah. this is nice yeah uh good song now i agree with you very good song the score is actually my least favorite part of the movie oh now dan <laughs> chimes in <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> okay let's let's hear it and it's not that i don't think it's good it's it's just that it sounds like generic indie road movie guitar music 101 i i would urge you to listen to it as a standalone versus watching (laughs) it with the movie truly no i'm serious i would urge you to listen to it as a standalone and tell me if you feel any differently after that fair but have to also judge it on its use in context in the Fair movie. Fair to you too, sir. what it's for. Yep. Um, and I just, it was the one thing about this movie that, that didn't feel to me like sort of unique and its own thing. I think that for what it is, it's a very well done version of that. But I, it, it, I can't like I can't like, go like praise it to high heavens the way that the, the way that other people have. I, I was thinking about like what other directions they could have taken it in because they could have done like a very electronic 
you know, fused heavy score for it. You know what this movie was missing? It was missing that Nine Inch Nails crunch. <laughs> you know, it was missing that I want to fuck you like an animal <laughs> energy. <laughs> Can I just make that my ringtone for you, please? <laughs> Uh, sorry zoe go ahead <laughs> no you're fine I-, I was gonna say i think that was actually the thing i liked most about it is the- and thought was the most unique thing about the score was that i i going in i expected it to actually be more along those lines like something a bit more intense and thriller-esque in turn and then time with the 80s at the same like simultaneously but I was really shocked and pleasantly so at how how restrained it was and stripped down because I think it it got to the heart of their relationship and you know that that sensitive sincerity that they share and and the song really makes most of it for me too but I yeah I don't think it's like their instantly iconic scores like Social Network or like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or anything but I do I do think it's still very well done and complements the mood very well. Sure. Yeah, it's very well done for what it is. It fits yeah. the movie well, yeah. Yeah, uh, I get it. You wanted something a little bit more out there. <laughs> I, I get it. All right, final thoughts on Bones and All. Because, you know, there's before Bones and All, and then there's <laughs> after. <laughs> there literally is. Yeah. Your world will not be the same after. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zoe, how about you? Final thoughts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Oh, I th- we've really gone over essentially everything I love about the movie, but one other thing I wanted to add was how much I adore that this story is told from the female perspective, because I think when we're dealing with, you know, these, these urges and kind of coming into your own as, as both a woman, a sexual being, and also a physical being with the cannibalism in the plot, I, I found that I saw so much more myself and I could also relate so much to the character. And I think there's an additional stigma about being a woman, you know, pursuing these desires or what they're supposed to mean. And I think these are issues that, you know, Russell infuses in her performance so effortlessly and she's always wearing it on her face. And it is just so different for her to be walking through the world as this person, not only as a woman, but of course as a black woman too in the eighties. And I, I love those intricacies to her characterization that I think make 
her character and and also the movie stand out more. Yeah, I, I really like that a lot. That's that's good. Zoe, do you have any more? Oh no, I think that I love the movie so much. <laughs> As I've said so much earlier, I think it's you know delicately directed. I think all the performances are pitch perfect, and yeah, I can't really praise it enough. Okie dokie, Dan Bear, how about you? I love that this movie just like whatever you think it's going to be, it's not. Mm-hmm. I it. It, this is one of the most unique movie-going experiences that I've had this year um, in that I just, from scene to scene, I find myself, like, staring at the screen going, like, oh, my God, where is it going and how are they going to keep this up? And I was just so invested from the very first frame. It's completely unique. I love the sort of niche that Luca Guadagnino has found for himself in adapting previous works of fiction to a different time period than they were originally set and completely recontextualizing the story to make it something different, but also essentially the same. Um, And having a new message come from that. And he did it beautifully, I thought, with Suspiria. He's done it again with Bones and All. I cannot wait to see what he does next. I think he is unquestionably one of the finest directors working today. I hope him and David Kajanek just keep working together on everything. (laughs) And also, Timothy Chalamet is not my type, so (laughs) the rest of you can have him. However, (laughs) that shot of him... And if you've seen the movie, you know which one it is. Literally took my breath away. <laughs> yeah, his his beauty is is something else. <laughs> my God. And with the blood and the, yeah. the lowest lung jeans and the abs and just like wooga. Okay. It's it's all in the chiseled chin, I'm telling you. Uh, and yeah, and whoever like compliments to the hair and makeup team on that shade of red for his mm-hmm. hair, like oh, I I know exactly who he is just because of that of that shade. <laughs> this podcast is about to become something very different. <laughs> listen, all, all Dan's saying is that you know, here's a guy that likes to listen to Kiss. I get it. And and Dan wants to kiss him too. You know, I, I totally get it. I get it. I want to kiss Lee, to be clear, not Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> That's okay. We want to do both over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for me, um, I really don't have any final thoughts. Uh, we really covered everything I wanted to uh, mention here. So I'll just kind of leave it off by saying that um, I love that this movie embraces fully what it is about um, and the characters. All, I'm sorry, all the actors do. Um, it finds real truth and empathy in a very unexpected place for me. And I found that to be actually the most remarkable quality about it overall. It also helps too that aesthetically speaking, I was very much in love with a lot of Luca Guanino's choices in this. Surprisingly so, you know, in terms of like a grade, it's funny to me because with Call Me By Your Name and then Suspiria and now this, I've given all three the same grade. But I think that just speaks to uh, the fact that there's like a flaw or two here or there that prevents me from putting it in like my top 10. But it is such a movie that I 
definitely respond to for different reasons uh, with all three of them. And with Bones and all, I, I feel like between the three, Call Me By Your Name, Suspiria, and this, I, I feel like it probably is my favorite and the one I will revisit the most over time. The jury's out on that one. And I know Luca's got other films before these three, but I definitely see Call Me By Your Name as kind of a turning point in his career, naturally so. Obviously, it was the film that, you know, catapulted Timothy Chalamet to stardom in a lot of ways, too. So it does feel like Bones and All is a combination of these previous two films coming together. And as you guys said, working with David uh, and then, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that they're going to continue working together in the future as well, because I love this collaboration so far. So for me, it is an extremely strong, very much recommended eight out of ten. Dan, how about you? I am also at an 8 out of 10. Um, However, I do think that... I I have not watched the film a second time yet, unfortunately, but I do think that on a second watch, I see the potential for this to go higher than that. All right. Zoe? (laughs) Um, I'm definitely going to be the highest here, naturally, but it is also my favorite film of the year and I'm, I'm very emotionally attached to it. I'm, I'm at a full 10 out of 10. I've seen it twice now and I loved it even more the second time. And I really, I don't think many other films have made me feel as much and as deeply as this movie this year, maybe like everything everywhere, women talking, but this is a really special movie and experience and one I'm going to continually revisit one that really inspires me artistically too. So yeah, full marks for bones and all. All right, and then as far as the film's awards potential goes, you know, I remember before I even watched the movie, before I saw it at Telluride, you know, we had heard some of the reactions out of Venice, but I kind of just, like, walked into this, like, I'm going to enjoy this, and I'm not even going to bother looking for Oscar potential, because there's no way in hell, no matter how good this movie is at the Academy, will ever come anywhere close to it. I got to say... Some doubt is creeping in my mind ever so slightly, not for picture and not for, you know, anything too, too high up. But I definitely think Mark Rylance, the screenplay, the score, the song, as you mentioned, Zoe, I think they're all on the table to some degree or another. Whether they get there remains to be seen, but I would I would say they're in the conversation. Mark Rylance getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this would be my dream. <laughs> it's funny because worst person in the world uh, getting a screenplay nomination made Dan cry <laughs> last year. The only other thing that can make Dan cry this year on Oscar nomination morning is Mark Rylance getting in for Supporting Actor. <laughs> Actually, that wouldn't make me cry. That would make me, like, cackle with glee. <laughs> because, like, that is the energy that this performance brings out of me. I was just like, the whole movie, I'm like, I, I more, more, more. <laughs> he, I, he is so, like, he is just on a whole other plane of existence, a plane that I would very much like to be on. And just like I, I think it's the most like just dementedly brilliant performance of the year. Right? Well, as of this recording right now, he's nominated currently for a Gotham Award, Film Independent yeah. Spirit Award, and I think some critics groups are going to go for him. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for him to get a CCA nomination for this, and then maybe, maybe a SAG nomination for it. That's what my gut was telling me, too, because I do think SAG is very theatery, and I think he has a ton of respect there, and this is a performance. And they usually they do go sometimes for a sole nominee or something in a film that's a bit more unconventional or genre-y. So 
Emily I'm not, Blunt in a Quiet Place? Yes, yeah. I, I'm not sure if it will translate to Oscar. I think he could just stay right under the radar, but that I think SAG is his best chance at an industry nomination right now. And I, I do agree with you, honestly, that I could see a world where this cracks adapted, not only because adapted screenplay is a very weak field this year, I think, in terms of how strong the top competitors are. It's kind of uh, women talking and everybody else right now. <laughs> um, but I, I think it is such a brilliant act of adaptation. And I, I, I just think if there will be some artier types in the writer's branch that could really take to the film and appreciate its narrative risk-taking and genre bending a little bit more, um, I would like to shout out the sound work because I think it is stupendous and really, really nails the cannibalism and, and in a very unsettling way. See, I, see, for me, like my personal uh, wish would be an editing nomination. But oh, oh God, it's yeah. too it's too cool for the Oscars to go for in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the adapted screenplay, though, I mean, we are in a timeline where people are seriously considering, of all things, Top Gun Maverick for yeah. adapted screenplay. I'm like, if we're considering that, we got to consider this. I mean, I actually am leaning more towards something like this getting in over that because if there's any branch that is going to be adventurous and is going mm-hmm. to uh, honor something that takes risks, it is the writing branch. Yep. And we've seen lone screenplay nominees before four of those types of films, movies like The Lobster, for example. Mm-hmm. So to me, I do think that, you know, some things do need to happen in terms of uh, certain films not landing with the Academy mm-hmm. and this obviously landing for it to happen. Uh, but I do think... Deep down, at the end of the day, when I really, really think about it, I think this movie is either going to get no nominations, which is, like I said, kind of what I assumed from the very beginning. So I won't be upset if if that happens. Expectations were all were always set. But I, I, I think its best shot is adapted screenplay. And I actually do think there is a world where that does happen. I, I want the best for Mark. I want the best for the editing. I want the best for a lot of things here. But... This makes a lot of sense as a lone mm-hmm. as a lone screenplay nominee. And and I do think there's a really strong path for it too, because I can totally see something like this get a USC scripter nomination. I can see WGA go for this, not only because, like you were saying, yep. it's very up the writer's alley, but also there will be some ineligibilities that will open up some spaces too and raise its profile a little bit if it gets in. And I could see CCA go because I think sometimes they have more than just five spots specifically too. So if it continually is staying in the conversation um, and people are really lauding it for the creativity and, and the genre melding, I think that I think that there is a case for it to be made because yeah, I agree with I, I don't see Top Gun getting a screenplay nomination. I, I've seen some people equate it to Dune getting in last year as the blockbuster pick, and people forget <laughs> that Dune is based on one of the most famously unadaptable yeah. novels of all time. <laughs> um, yeah, no matter if Christopher McQuarrie wrote Top Gun Maverick, great, great movie, but it is not a screenplay movie, and I don't yeah. no matter how weak the field is, and I do think something like this could even be the arty choice over a white noise, because I think there's more passion for this film, and it's a bit better received across the board and UAR is pushing it like crazy like it has been this and women talking it is right next to each other I got both screeners today they are really trying to keep it on the top of people's minds and it has the indie world of us so this guy could be the, yeah it could be there I'm really curious to see how this one does at the box office mm-hmm. 
Um, because if it does do, um, like, you know, quote unquote, unexpectedly strong business, which I think it could, especially through word of mouth and, you know, all the Chalamet fans, um, it, it could be one of those that becomes like a legit hit right at the time when people are talking about Oscar nominations and what they need to see. And if this becomes something that they need to see because everybody's talking about it, you could find some surprising nominations. Um, I, I do think that if the song makes a short list, it stands a really good shot. Yes, yeah, I would say that too. I, I want to see it on on the top that top ten and stuff, but ah, God, that'd be so. And they are beloved by the musical branch. Um, Thomas and Radicus Ross are really big names. It's a mm-hmm. wonderful song. I think it that that category is really in flux, and I could see some shocking snubs this year because I really don't think even the biggest of names are safe, like Rihanna and Lady Gaga and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it could, yeah, there could be some shakeups there, and they do have some unconventional nominees every now and then. So. Fingers crossed it at least gets on the shortlist. All righty. Well, that'll do it here for our review of Bones and All. And it was a good review, you know, as our friend Sully would say. And it's never dully with Sully. So, <laughs> Zoe, where can I find you? Oh, that should have been it. It's never dully with Zoe? Nah, that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> where can I find you on the internet? I'm pretty much everywhere at Zoe Rose Bryant. I'm newly on Hive, if you guys want to give that a try. And I also have a new YouTube channel that I've been launching and supplying with a lot of new content that'll be pretty consistently updated. So you go check me out there, too. Dan Bear, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. You can find me if Twitter goes down. You can find me on Hive at Dance and Dan on Film. Nope, just Dance and Dan. Oh, on on Hive. Yep. It, oh, interesting. I, I was like, <laughs> I am going to be the Dance and Dan on Hive. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, are we really at the point where we are plugging Hive, I guess? I, I don't know. But yes. you can always yes. find me on all social media at Next Best Picture. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Bones and All here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, 
punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz. And up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music. And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, Man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.